You're listening to The Witness Interview Podcast. I'm Robert Reed, and we are speaking with the manifestly talented Melanie Betty, director, actor, and dramaturg. There, I got them out in the right order. So, thank you for joining us, Melanie. Pleasure, Robert. So, uh, Mel has had a varied career over the last 30, 30 years or so. 30. Or something like that. Yeah. Odd. And we're going to start at the beginning and work Ooh, through it is where okay. we're going to go because I was looking over your CV and I noticed you were Suds president in 84. Oh, I was and that was pretty much the pinnacle of my career actually. Oh, I absolutely. Peaked early. Well, yes. student theatre, that's what happens, that's right? That's right. You no, I did work my way up to being president of Suds, uh, Sydney University Dramatic Society and that was a very exciting time. Yeah. It was, of course, a time at university when you could concentrate on making student theatre and just let the learning go to one side, mm-hmm. the essays to one side, pre-fees, of course. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. that was a wonderful time. We were autodidacts, really. We read very widely. Mm. We who was were... there with you? Because I, I know who was at Melbourne at the time. Oh, yeah. Well, a, a very important man called Robert Jarman, who mm-hmm. now is very significant in uh, Hobart, in mm-hmm. teaching and mm-hmm. directing and performing. Uh, a woman called Jane Mays, who directed quite a number of big classics. I was also there when the Seymour Centre was operating and Philip Keir and mm. others were creating big projects with students. Patrick Toomey, who went to England, has quite a good career. number of other people. Michael McLaughlin still working. Mm. Many people who continue to work in slightly different ways. Yeah, right. Tom Healy, I directed really? in... Um, one of his early shows, yes. So I made some very strong friendships there and worked on lots of new writing that was coming out in the 80s, Mm. particularly Edward Bond, very political work, very difficult work. We just jumped in and made work. Uh, In those days, university theatres, student theatres were not really resourced with a paid artistic director. We were simply given spaces and a very small amount of money and we just made it up really. And um, I'm sure some of the work suffered for that. But uh, we felt very driven and in charge and able to do things and we learnt from each other. Very much that age, too, of feeling able to do things and empowered, right? That's right. I feel like the kids these days are much the same, like have that kind of uh, take on the world energy, which is one of the good things about teaching, right? Like you still get that kind of fed back to you because otherwise you're surrounded by people our age, well, our age perhaps. Well, you don't want to be passive at that age waiting for someone to give you permission to make work Mm. or to interpret or take on a difficult project. You just want to grab it and if it interests you to go ahead with it and... You know, student theatre is about the participation in it as much as anything else. Mm. It's also a bit about making those networks too. I've sort of talked about this a couple of times in various formats, I suppose, that often the kind of bonds you make through student theatre are the company you go out to form and the artists that you continue to work with through your career. Not as like a, as a unit or anything, but your cohort kind of be, tends Absolutely. to be the same people. And for me, that was more about after having done my degree at Sydney Uni, I went to VCA, VCA and trained yeah. as an actor. And at that time, there were also three-year degrees in directing and writing and Mm. what was then called animateuring. And so that cohort of people are the ones who I made a lot of work with initially. I continue to make Mm. work with. So last year, I worked on a project with... Jane Woolard and Amanda Johnson and a whole range of other people who I had studied with at VCA 30 years before. And so that partly because I moved from Sydney to Melbourne, they became the people that I make work with. Yeah, of course. But very formative experiences. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And so coming out of that VCA period, who was whose who's VCA was yours? Uh, David Latham. David Latham, that's right. Well, that's it was right. Roger Hodgman the first year. Then he went off to be artistic director at MTC, MTC and yeah. David Latham took over. Yeah, 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 yeah. And after that, so, I mean, it's an interesting time, that sort of mid-80s heading into the early 90s, mm-hmm. actually, because that's when that huge set of funding cuts happens yes. and the community theatre companies all yes. go. And um, a lot of the infrastructure that used to exist in the 80s or that kind of mid-range stuff sort of goes as yes, well, that's right. which we still struggle with now and certainly affected the industry for decades to come. And you and that cohort were kind of the first people into that kind of... That's right. We graduated into... Storm. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I was lucky enough when I first came out of VCA to get a job with Arena Theatre Company mm-hmm. who were, um, as they still do, touring work. So I got a good amount of work straight out of VCA, which mm. is very consolidating. Mm. And There's always one, right? There's, <laughs> there's al- always yeah. one who goes out and gets work. Oh, well, there were a number of us. It wasn't right. just me. Oh, no. There were people who did much more fashionable work than I oh, was doing. Right. But the people I'd worked with in third year did turn into people who employed me. The sessional staff who came in in third year did turn into jobs, which was great. Mm. So um, Peter King I worked with in third year and um, was then part of his company going through stages when he was making very yeah, interesting yeah. and complex work. And um, I worked with Arena and various other people. But we were absolutely clear that the jobs were getting less and fewer and further between. Mm. And one of the things that, because I'd already been a driver, an initiator of work at university and I'd already got a degree, I came out of VCA knowing that I would probably want to make my own opportunities Mm. as well as being in other people's shows. And it wasn't long after that that we set up the $5 Theatre Company, which was an opportunity to commission writers, to work within the ensemble, to make the kind of work that we thought was important. So I didn't come out of VCA thinking I'd just get employed. Mm. I was thrilled to be employed, Mm. but I always knew the moment would come where I would want my own company and be excited to do that. The great thing at that point was that there was enough paid work around where you could be planning and thinking about a show with your own theatre company, in this case, the $5 theatre company, Mm. which was obviously not going to pay us very much. Uh, But you were also being employed in other gigs, which was good for your uh, professional development and your bank balance. Yeah, yeah. You guys were all sort of um, often getting kind of TV or playbox work as well Well, around there? playbox work. I had a lot of work with MTC Education initially as an actor and then as a director of uh, MTC Education shows, which Mm -hmm. continued on for many years. Tom did a bit of work with the church too through that uh, time? He had been working with yeah. the church. Not so much once $5 started. I can't I feel remember. like the church the, might have ended before. I think it might yeah. have. Tom Consolidum was very well employed. He'd had that era, that 10-year earlier era where he'd been in South Australia. He'd been in a Newcastle. He'd been an ensemble member in theatre companies mm. since he graduated from Flinders. And so I, I look at his trajectory and think, that's what actors were doing, yeah. not all actors, yeah. but there was an opportunity to be an ensemble member in an ongoing paid theatre company. And by the time I came out of VCA, and let alone for people graduating now, that's simply a, a dream. It's yeah. just simply, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's almost unbelievable really. But the training ground just to do a lot of work was extraordinary. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys had a Five Dollar and the other companies around the time. Whistling in the theatre. Whistling in the theatre. Chameleon. Yes. Were the first wave of what at least I think of as the real independent theatre companies. And post 2000s, that becomes the phrase, right? The yes. independent theatre yes. boom, etc. But really, like the 80s had been that kind of period of big companies have their own venue, have actual staff and administration. Yes. Oh, gosh. Um, and then... Almost overnight, right, by the 90s, it's down to being a handful of people who work together, do everything, a couple project of creative individuals, project funding if you're yep. lucky. And so there was an element to which um, I feel like you guys shaped what happens now, mm-hmm. certainly what happened through um, the rest of the 90s and the, that 2000s period where independent theatre with a storeroom and stuff like that sort of blew up. Um, I feel like uh, the ground rules for that were all set down during that time. And $5 is a really good example of that because here are f- five, six? Five. Five, yes. Five, five actors. Initially four and then we added uh, Vicky. Vicky Eager. Yes. Yeah. We should mention who the others were. There's you, there's Tom, there's Vicky. Uh, so it was me and Tom Considine and Chris Corbett and Glenn Perry initially and then we added Victoria Eager mm. and Sue Strano came on as administrative general manager support. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And All that, unpaid, of course. Of course, <laughs> yes. right. And that kind of group of artists coming together to go, well, we still have to make work, right? Like it's it's not just a thing we like to do or a job. It's what we do. Well, there was a, a slightly an additional agenda with $5, which was that we felt that theatre at the time was exclusive and difficult to access. And, that's much um, better now. Those, <laughs> well, there are smaller companies you can go to now that's for true. cheaper. Yes, that's Whereas true. as those middle range companies were diminishing and mm. only the large ones were left, it was impossible to afford to go to those shows. Mm. And the opportunity for student rush and all those things was not as strong as it is now. Mm. So we had a very strong political agenda about demonstrating that rather than imagining that theatre was dead or dying and that nobody wanted to go, that if you actually created a theatre company that was affordable Mm. or, in our case, so cheap that it was almost a gimmick, Mm -hmm. um, that people would come. Less than the price of pizza. And people did come. Like So we we did sell every seat for $5, which meant we didn't have a lot of income, Mm. but we played to almost completely full houses on Mm. every occasion. Mm. So it was able to demonstrate that people did want to go to the theatre. Yeah, yeah. And that if they could afford it, they would make the effort to book and come. Mm. And that was in the – oh, I think you guys worked out of a lot of places, but mostly you were out of the old – We only worked at Ant Hill. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It it wasn't Ant Hill by that much. No, it was. We started when it was Ant Hill and Jean-Pierre Mignon supported us to allow us to have a space in his building – um, they were moving when out they by that stage, though, pretty close. Halfway through yeah. $5, our five-year period, they moved down to the Gasworks. Mm. And then the Temperance Hall in South Melbourne was in transition, trying to be an independent theatre venue, mm-hmm. had a range of iterations, which eventually and sadly fell away. Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's interesting that sort of thing that happens too. I've noticed a couple of times where what happens is a venue will get started, a company will be sort of in it, resident in it, it'll bring in other companies to work in that space and then the main company will go for whatever reason, mm. move out or it will just fold. But everybody sort of fights to keep the space alive for a couple of years. There's so much effort in getting those spaces up. Yeah. It's just we keep reinventing the wheel and sometimes you need a new space for a new kind of theater but other times it's just that the energy goes out of the space and I have a little theory about that which is that sometimes when the company that originated the space moves they often move because they've become established Mm. and they get offered 
the opportunity for a bigger, grander, cleaner, mm. more convenient space. And they go for it and it's often the death of the company. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's and Antil. The, that was Antil. And the spirit that they brought to, I mean, I'm not a very theosophic person, but I do notice the spirit in buildings. Mm, mm. And the spirit that went from that building was very, very clear that it had departed. Yeah, yeah. And we kept it alive for a couple more years, but it then becomes, it also becomes fought over and over-regulated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that you used to be able to go in there and make what you wanted to make has gone. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, a lot of that is the administrative changes as well, because then there are, like, my experience of those kind of spaces is that you can walk in, go talk to the boss and go, I've got this idea, I want to do this thing. And they go, oh, yeah, sure, we'll clear the thing, we'll clear it, and you can go in there. Whereas once it starts being run by committee or several different artists, then everybody's jockeying for their own spaces right. and all that sort of stuff. Certainly happened at the storeroom as well. Yes, that's right. So since then, though, you have done a lot of dramaturgy. Yes, I have. And I'm really interested in what your process is for that mm. and how you go about approaching mm. a text, a performance, et cetera, et cetera. Like, where do you start? But when are you brought on board as a oh, dramaturg? at lots of different times. So when I started being a dramaturg um, in the 90s, you were basically a script doctor. Yeah. And you were only brought on board if people thought there was a problem with the play and they mm. wanted to pass that problem on to someone else. And your job really was to bring the writer into line to make the script shorter mm. or more appropriate or clearer. So script doctoring is a nasty process and I think brilliantly we've moved on from that. And I think... I think I can claim some responsibility for that because Paul Monaghan, Peter Eckersall and I set up an organisation called Dramaturgies mm -hmm. and really at the time um, dramaturg was a dirty word mm -hmm. and I, I think yeah. we assisted to make the role of the dramaturg more clear mm -hmm. and we promoted it as, as a research function and beyond the script doctor. Mm -hmm. And we got the Australia Council to be much more interested in dramaturgy and they also set up... Um, a dramaturgy fellowship of which I was a recipient at mm -hmm. one point. Mm -hmm. And so dramaturgy now is much more to do with how the Europeans would think about dramaturgy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a good thing. Yeah, that's how Never, it should have been to begin with. I remember everybody right. complaining that uh, we're calling it a dramaturg, but it's not really a dramaturg. No. Yeah. And in fact, I vaguely recall a great deal of discussion late 90s, early 2000s about nobody knew what a dramaturg was. Oh. It was kind of a new word to yes. Australia. Yes, it was. Yeah. And we'd had literary associates yes. and we'd had editors and mm. all, all those things. And you had script consultants who gave you a report on your script if you paid for it through mm. the... Playwrights Australia or conference, yeah, yeah. which was all rather unhelpful because it was really just speaking at a distance, whereas I think dramaturgy is useful when it's a part of a collaboration and a conversation. Yeah, yeah. And it has to be a willing from both sides. Yes. <laughs> and for me, it's mostly about asking questions to mm. begin with. Mm -hmm. As I get to know the collaborator or as we hone what what the interests of the piece are or what the structure or what the style is, then it's much easier then to start thinking about making suggestions. But you've got to start very broadly about finding out what is the kernel, what is the interest of the project. Mm. So I work in a number of ways. One of the things I discovered through $5 Theatre Company when we commissioned a lot of work was new writing. Was Those new writers being people like Andrew Bovell, Pamela right. Bersher, et cetera. Hanny yeah. Rayson. Yeah. Is that what you need to do is offer people some parameters that are exciting. Mm. 
So with $5, we offered them an ensemble of actors they could write for, mm. uh, an aesthetic, which was minimalism, given mm. the $5 price tag, and immediate production. Mm. We were we were commissioning people saying, we're on in September, so we've got six months for you mm. to write us a short play or whatever the structure was. And those things worked incredibly well. Those were not really artistic things. Mm. They were parameters that, mm. that allowed the writer to focus in on what they were doing. So from that, I learned that parameters are really useful, so trying to set what the parameters are. And I did an experiment a number of years ago where I worked with a wonderful designer called Daryl Cordell. Ah, yes. And he and I came up with an idea of a design, a space, in which there was a tree. Mm -hmm. uh, the piece ended up being called Avery. And we then invited three writers, Mingzhu Hai, uh, Dan Giovanni, and Anna Barnes, to respond to the physical space. So this must be mid-2000s by this stage? Early to No, maybe mid-2000s, yeah. yes. Because I'm thinking that Anna's fairly young. So. Yes, that's right, yes. And so actually that was a different kind of dramaturgy where we said there will be three actors and this space, so what would you write for this? Mm. So I'm always interested in how do you extend the boundaries of what dramaturgy is. Now, mm. sometimes it doesn't need extension. It's just about you and the writer working out how to progress the narrative, how to develop the character, how to find the rhythm of the mm. piece. Mm. And sometimes we do that through discussion. Sometimes I sit in rehearsal and feedback there. Sometimes I work with a director. I often work with Jane Woolard as she's working on either her own work that she might be writing and then directing or big old difficult plays mm, yeah. that she digs up from these amazing places. I'm talking medieval plays. Um, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Jane was one of the people responsible for bringing the time is not yet right. That's right. She was. Yeah. And I worked with her as a dramaturg on her first production of that. Tell me about that. Well, the second time she directed it, I was in it. In it so yeah. I remember that better. Um, but Louis Essen made a lot of suggestions to himself in notes about how he oh. might improve the play. And they're in the text? On. No, Philip Parsons brought these to light. They're in notebooks and there are a couple of old scripts that Louis Essen made notes on. I think Philip Parsons rightly thinks that what Louis wanted to do to the play would have destroyed it. <laughs> so I think Louis was looking at the play thinking it was far too much fun. Yeah. Well, it's it, an earlier work for him as it's well. It's a very early work and, and it's, it's a style he never went back to. Yeah. Well, a satirical kind yeah, of. Yeah, which he was much better at. He was lovely yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because all the later kind of Australian, the drought and the drover and all yes. that stuff, which is completely comes from him going to Ireland and having... What That's was right. his name? What was the... Singe and Yates. Yes, yes, yep. in his ear going, oh, I should go and make Oh, you've got to talk about, about, you know, the landscape. The and Australia, yes. yeah. But actually in the time he's not yet ripe, he's talking about Australian politics. Yeah. And he uses a sort of Wildean and a Shavian sort mm. of combination. It's it's a play I'm about to direct, so I've just remembered and, and read a lot more about it. Uh, so working with Jane on the floor is very symbiotic. So we're working with a playwright who's no longer in the room because mm. he's dead, yep. on a text that has some variations that are offered. But I'm also working often with Jane to think about the spatial dramaturgy of the piece. So mm. it's not just about what words are being said in mm. what order, but also about how we can shape the space and the kinds of performance style in, in that yeah, yeah. piece. So I'm working with her as a sort of directorial consultant 
in the role of a dramaturg, if that makes sense. So I think dramaturgy is a very broad field. Yeah, yeah, And I it's think so. better not to think about it as one thing because everybody who works as one tends to interpret and bring to it their own skills. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that it's, I think it's, it's, it's really easy to fall into that trap, which is, I suppose, why Australia did it in the 90s, right, was it, to think it's about interrogating the script mm. when it's not. It's interrogating the text, and the text is more than just the words that it is. It's everything that's on stage. Well, it's about interrogating the, the theatre of it, I yeah. think, which includes the written word and, and all the other dramaturgical elements, the light, the sound, yeah, yeah, the yeah. space, the body. But we began in Australia thinking about dramaturgy in an English literary way, which was about the script. Yeah, yeah. And that is my strength. There are much better dramaturgs than me to work with you on physical theatre. That's not my strength. My mm. strength is on the written word and on plays mm. um, and working with young, emerging and established playwrights to strengthen what it is they're doing by hopefully being a good listener and feeding back what I'm hearing and feeding back where I think the gaps are. Mm. Mm. I mean, I could talk for hours about that, so <laughs> I, won't, I won't get us... Um... There is one other thing I could oh. say about dramaturgy, which I extended my thinking about it to include thinking about the dramaturg as a kind of advocate for the theatre. Mm -hmm. And I applied for and received a Gloria Fellowship from NIDA to go overseas and look at programs for sustaining and integrating culturally diverse actors and yeah. performers in both England and America I travelled to and came back with that idea and set up a conference in which we could talk about that mm. and a, a slightly other iteration of that was working to revive the Australian Women Directors Alliance to yeah. talk about equity for women in theatre. So that for me became dramaturgy as advocate, mm. really. Industrial dramaturgy. Industrial of. dramaturgy. Good term, Rob. I haven't <laughs> thought of it like that. But that for me was just the next logical step. If mm. you're thinking big, if you're thinking about what the theatre is, what the ecology is, then you've got to think outside the rehearsal room to think about who should be in the rehearsal room mm. and mm. how do you get those people in there and how do you open doors yeah, to yeah. other kinds of thinking. I think that's really important, actually. I wish there was a lot more of that. Um, that uh, and I do like that notion of being able to dramaturg the environment in which you make work, not mm. just the work itself or the, the, the environment the work creates. Mm. Um, it's a very good way of, I think, getting theatre people to look at that stuff, which we maybe not you know, industrial lawyers or anything like that, but we can feel when a shape is yes. present in a social experience. Well, I think there's a lot of thinking around that at the moment and some of it, of course, doesn't come to fruition in the way we hope, but mm. I think there's a lot of experimentation going on at the moment, not just about form but about inclusion mm. and mm. about thinking about your power structures and so, you know, all of that is good mm. and I don't really critique the fact that that sometimes in the project that you see it's not ideal because these things take a really long time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you've just got to look at what the projects that are on and think that is a great impulse there and that's really working and mm. that's something we need to improve rather than decide that it's a bad piece of work and we'll just close down all that thinking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a, well, yeah, it's a very old-fashioned way of approaching thinking about things is this good or bad, right? Because mm. it then becomes about the person 
personal judgment call. Yeah. And like, that's not very useful or interesting. Open things up rather than shut yes. them down, right? Yeah. You mentioned the Women Directors Guild. Oh, we yes. must talk about that. So it's Australian been t- Women Directors Alliance. Oh, Alliance, mm. yes. Think uh, about the word alliance. Yeah, well, because I don't know why Guild. Was well, there another the Writers Guild. A Writers Guild. No, it used to be called the Australian Women Directors Association. So mm. that was something that was set up in, gosh, maybe it's the 80s. 80s? Kim That's... Durbin's very good on this history. Yeah, that was... With Eva Chayor. Eva Chayor, yeah. Who was sadly murdered, murdered. in... Um, Thailand? Thailand, yeah. yes, rather suddenly. She was an extraordinary director. She set that up as an opportunity for women to talk about their processes, mm. but also to begin an advocacy program for thinking about women entering the mainstream and mm. being paid for their work, mm. which was at that time very poor and continued to be very poor for a very long time. Mm. And we'll probably return to that, I say, in my darkest, gloomiest moments. So that. That existed for many years and we exchanged information. We did interesting things like workshops together to Mm. understand each other's processes. We did a bit of advocacy. And after Eva died, we'd set up the Eva Chayord Women Directors Memorial Mm. Award. Of which which you're a recipient? No, I'm not a recipient. Are you not a recipient? No, no. No, I think Kim Durbin was. Many wonderful women were. I wasn't. And the whole thing just fell by the wayside over time. Yeah. However, I think in 2009 or 10, we revived it. So we just we still called it Order, A-W-D-A, but we changed the word association to alliance mm. just to signify a kind of change. And we started a very detailed and hard-hitting campaign, mostly through the MTC, talking about the lack of female representation in the key creative roles. Yeah, because this was around the time that the all-male season came out at Belvoir. Belvoir, Yes. There were a number of women in Sydney working Mm. on these fronts as well. The Melbourne Theatre Company, being a department technically of Melbourne University, did need to abide by their equal opportunity clause and they simply weren't. So that was a legal way in which we could work with them. The board initially gave us a lot of pushback until they realised that actually they hadn't been complying with Mm. those laws. So we achieved an enormous amount through, sadly, public shaming. Yeah, well. And I think there are now programs and opportunities. It's something you have to keep an eye on all the time, how many women are being employed and are they staying within the education unit and never moving up and all the classic things. So you don't just rest on this stuff. You have to keep an eye on it. The other thing we did around 2010 was get some funding from the Victorian government to run a forum Mm. in which key female directors presented about their work because one of the things that we found out was that many of the major companies felt that there were no female directors Mm. and they wondered who they were and whether they should start training them and we wished to demonstrate that there were scores of highly competent, (laughs) very experienced women directors who had worked both nationally and internationally. So we tried to balance the critique with a with a big forum at the Arts Centre which actually was able to demonstrate the existing expertise of female directors. Yeah, yeah. It's easy to constantly suggest that there are no actors of colour, there are no female directors, there are no female lighting designers. So we must start training them. But in fact, these people are already out there working and you simply need to allow them to have a go. 
it's sadly not surprising and yet at the same time staggering that it's possible to say something like that, to be able to say... They said uh, it in 2010. I have it in written evidence. In 2010, people felt comfortable saying that and this is what is so wonderful about what's happened. Well, yeah. In in this decade and particularly in the last year or so, Mm. people... Almost everybody would be cautious about saying that now, even if they believed it. Yeah, yeah. I did, but it's, it, it speaks to a kind of complete, a willful ignorance of the history of the thing that you're supposed to like. If nothing else, regardless of whether or not you're feminist or anti-feminist or what have you, just knowing the history of it. How many of them were in the APG, right? Like, yes. I, I feel like... Um, but Rob, you know yourself because you are an advocate for the history. Uh, yeah. But you know that that we work constantly in a, a little bubble of now. We can only remember the work that people have just done. Yeah. We're only interested in the people who are about to come on board and do stuff or look like they're going to be the next big thing. Mm. As a community, we absolutely do not celebrate our history or mm. understand it. Makes us um, seem sort of shallow, frankly. Uh, well, yes. Yeah. And it is a, there is a cult of youth in, yes. in, in the theatre, as in many parts of yeah. the world. It's easy to dismiss those who went before you as if they were fuddy-duddies yeah. or had had nothing to contribute. And you're a historian, so you know that that's not true. Yeah. And I've started doing a research project at La Trobe Uni thinking about actor trainers and Australian actor trainers mm. um, through Ausstage and other platforms. And you discover that there were extraordinary people like Brian Siren, who's an um, Indigenous mm-hmm. teacher from Sydney, who not only trained with but brought Stella Adler to Australia. Yeah, yeah. And basically the started 70s. the National Black Theatre Movement with yes. um, him and... Uh, Bob Mazza and Gary Foley. Gary Foley's the other yes. one I was thinking of, yeah. Uh, so these people have been doing wonderful things and women directors really were in the early part of the 20th century. Some of the people who set up some of the theatres like the ensemble and the little theatres that mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. are the basis for what we currently have. Yeah. And so if we just look even briefly to the past, we can see that there are lineages and trajectories and we don't have to constantly start again. Mm. Mm. Moments pause there because I'm like, why do we do that? But because everything's in the moment, right? And it's easy oh, to well, forget. Because we're busy as well. And yeah. And, the, you know, making work is a hothouse. Yeah. And when you're making the work, you can only think about that. I do. I get totally lost in that moment of making it. And it's so exciting when the work is on and it's being seen and appreciated and thought about. And uh, also I think, uh, you know, if you're going to train as a theatre professional, you need every moment of that training as embodied practice and using too much of it to get a history can feel like you're losing time in the studio. And- yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, I think about performance traditions that have that history built into their yes. training as well, Japanese traditions, yes. for example, where that history is in the room with you, Yes, which is, I think, something that... Well, I mean, I think about that, but to an extent, I mean, I, when I was at VCA, Lindy was there t- training the yes. actors, right? So, like, they're in the room. There's got to be something to be able to... D- I don't know, uh, well, make people care more about their history, which, as you wisely point out, I know better than. <laughs> well, that's around, that kind of brings us to where you were mentioning your PhD, yes. which I see actor in the embodied word. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, 
It has several parts. One part is actually tracing the lineages of some of the key actor trainers in Australia in order to understand what it was that I was taught. Yeah. Because when I was taught it, I received it in the moment. I didn't know where it came from. Yeah. And I yeah. needed to do a PhD to find out what, who, 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 what was I being taught and mm. where had they learnt it from? So in that part of the PhD, I've developed a diagrammatic system that allows me to very simply demonstrate the key influences on uh, particular teachers and also on oneself as mm. an artist. And that by next year will be available on Odd Stage where you'll be able to see that system. Oh, and terrific. there's an article in the current ads um, journal in which you can see how that prototype works if it's of interest and yeah. something you could apply to your own work. Yeah, absolutely. So it's available in that article for you to take up and use if you wish. The second part of the PhD is trying to think through why I do what I do in actor training. So it's about actor training. Mm -hmm. In order to, because I work with text, in order to create performances that are embodied and not just talking heads. So at the time that I was doing the PhD, I was employed as the lecturer in acting at BCA and I was thinking a lot about how to assist young people to take on text in a way that allowed them to own the language and to feel that they had entered the language in an embodied way. Mm. Young actors often enjoy a great deal active physical yeah. processes and they want to make work that's very active and mm. physical. And, of course, as you get older, you realise you might not be able to make such physical performances all the time. Well, there's that. But to, in, to make the text which excites me, to make it accessible to them and to give them some imaginative physical ways of working with text. So those are the two parts of the PhD. And I did make a work with Carol Petullo and Jane Bailey called Button, mm -hmm. which was an experiment in applying some of my actor training processes to very a project in which we were generating material with very experienced and slightly older actors who might want to work in slightly less energetic ways. Yeah, yeah was great doing the PhD. It was, as you know, hateful as well. <laughs> but I had an extraordinary supervisor, Professor Peter Tate from Latrobe, ah, yeah. who yeah. kept me at it and on to it. And yes, I might be a better person for it. Mm. Mm. I feel like I am. I've mine. read more. Yeah. You're a better person for it. For, Dr. Well, Reed. Yes, Dr. Mm. Betty. Uh, yeah, I like. I feel like we started our PhDs from very similar points, actually, because yeah. mine was about trying to go and what the hell happened to me in that last 10 years, yes. right? Like yes. the independent theatre, what was that? Mm -hmm. And the only reason I've become this kind of historian now is because there was no history. It all stopped at 84 mm -hmm. when Nimrod closes. So that left you guys out, that left the church out, that left out so much stuff between then and the storerooms. Yeah. I wanted to fill that in just because I wanted to know. And it's really... I think it's really useful to be able to trace stuff like that, those kind of lineages and traditions of practice here, because it speaks against that received notion of nothing ever interesting happens here. <laughs> like, you know, stuff, we're talking about performers being in and staying in the moment of, and in the now. This country does that mm. and does that with its history over and over. And certainly this industry has. The amount of times I have heard over, I still hear it. Only recently in one of my classes, I had someone say, oh, but there was no Australian theatre before the 1950s. Nice. Anyway, so yes, it does make me slightly better, but it also makes me slightly more obnoxious when I get into this sort of stuff. 
So you're working currently, you started Branch back in 1998? Uh, yes, I just keep the Branch there, the Branch Theatre Company. Uh, it's just on a shelf in my front room and I bring it out when there's a project that I really want to do mm. and there's there's not another place that I can do it. Yeah, yeah. So it's not a company with a great ambition to take over the world. It's it's there as, as a support to me to do projects I love, like Crazy Brave that I've just directed yeah, yeah. at um, Carlton Courthouse by Michael Gurr. And when I directed Traitors by Stephen Sewell or Ghosts or mm-hmm. many other productions, Avery, it doesn't have a very consistent artistic trajectory. A lot of it's, Australian scripts in there for that. Yeah, a lot of Australian scripts. It is there for me to experiment with what it is that mm. I want to do next. And otherwise, you know, in the last decade or yeah, decade. I've been doing a lot of directing inside drama schools yeah. at the National Theatre School at Whopper, at VCA, and now at Federation University. So yeah. they're extraordinary opportunities to work on big plays with big casts yeah. by yeah. big old writers. So occasionally when you come out of those institutions, you want to do something else with a new writer yeah. or to create something crazy like a space with a tree and get people to write to it. So, yeah, the branch is not a groundbreaking theatre company. It's just my friend in the front room. Oh, that's a lovely way of describing it. <laughs> and uh, is that what you're putting Time Is Not Yet Ripe out through? Uh, no, because Time Is Not Yet Ripe is a production for the graduating students at Federation ah, University. Ah, great. For one half of them. So they'll be learning about Louis Essen in their last semester of their training. Fabulous. Uh, so it's a fully supported production. Fed Uni is doing really great work up in Ballarat yeah, with yeah. Uh, really interesting, good teaching, mm. good support, interesting spaces. A great bunch of kids too, actually. And really very different kind of cohort up there, I think. And they're starting, many of them are coming back to Melbourne and making interesting work. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So good on Fed, Fed Uni. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so very much, Dr. Betty. You've been listening to The Witness Interview Podcast with Melanie Betty, sound and audio by Ben Keane, and I'm Robert Reed. Remember to go to witnessperformance.com to subscribe, to stay in, to, uh, well, to keep us alive and keep us doing what we're doing. If you uh, want intelligent, thoughtful, independent criticism uh, context for your theatre, go uh, sign up. And it's just been pointed out to me that uh, if you're listening to this interview, you've already signed up and paid your subscription fees. So get your friends to do it because we really need the money. Ha <laughs> ha!